Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, June 10th, 2011. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Small change of plans for today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'll explain here in a second. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there as a result of it. Well, we've got to do the corrective work. Now, we've been covering the uh, Rob Bell Love Wins book and basically have tried to do a comprehensive job of not only addressing the book itself, but prior to its release, uh, I played an entire series of lectures that taught the biblical, uh, what the Bible teaches regarding hell. Now, I, so here's what we're going to do today. Well, I'm going to kind of usurp, uh, you know, preempt what what it is that I had on deck for today. And we're going to go with a singular theme today. Uh, and, and that is, is we're going to be listening to a lecture as well as a question and answer uh, segment uh, f- that was recently posted on the White Horse Inn uh, blog. And uh, D- Dr. Michael Horton was invited to uh, uh, the Richmond Center for Christian Studies in uh, Richmond, Virginia, and he gave a lecture entitled, Is Love Winning? And he gave a good critique of Rob Bell's uh, teaching inside of the book as well as he took time for question and answer. Now, I want to I want to make this clear at the front end of this. I don't agree with everything that Michael Horton said in his lecture. Um, he, uh, as an academic and as a careful theologian, I think he wants to be careful not to take the conclusions regarding Rob Bell too far. So during the question and answer period, uh, Michael Horton is going to be asked a question as to whether or not Rob Bell is a heretic. Now, personally, I having studied Bell for a long time. Um, I am of the conclusion that Rob Bell teaches a different gospel and that uh, he does not teach the biblical doc, uh, gospel. And uh, Michael Horton, I do not think, is as well studied on Rob Bell as uh, as he ought to be. He's, you know, Rob Bell has come on his radar, and as a result of it, the answer that he gives um, has more to do, and I'll let you listen in and let you hear the answer. It's toward the tail end of the program. But the answer that Michael Horton gives 
it has more to do with trying to remain in conversation and dialogue with an entire generation of people who have been, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, not catechized into what the Bible teaches, and as a result of it, they don't know what Christianity uh, teaches, and they don't know how to defend it, and they don't know what it says. As a result of it, they're highly influenced by postmodernity and other things, and and a lot of these people, well, they're coming up through the mega churches, they're coming up through the seeker-driven churches, and in a lot of ways they're coming up through uh, liberal uh uh, liberal mainline, liberal mainline denominations, and so uh, the answer that Michael Horton gives is uh, one that I wouldn't personally give. But I'm going to play the lectures anyway because Michael Horton does a fantastic job. I disagree with him on his conclusions regarding Rob Bell. I think we need to uh, we need to take a stronger tact with Rob Bell, and uh, the tact that we need to take with him is is that we need to affirm two things. Yes, he is a heretic. He teaches a different gospel, and this is clear uh, when you look at the body of his work, uh, both his sermons as well as books and videos. And so, uh, you know, when you take a look at the body of what Rob Bell believes, teaches, and confesses, I think it is safe to say that Rob Bell is a heretic. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's, it's not just the hell issue that comes to bear. Um, you know, for me, the, the primary issue is, is what is the gospel that he teaches? But at the same time, we have got to come up with a way to engage, uh, people who are being influenced by Rob Bell, who haven't been well catechized, engage them in such a way that we can challenge a lot of the false doctrine and false hermeneutics that they've learned as a result of being uh, catechized by Rob Bell's NUMA videos, by his books and other things. And so what's interesting is is that uh, if you listen carefully to the question and answer period at the tail end of the program, at the tail end of the program, you're going to hear somebody who was obviously influenced by uh, the uh, postmodern uh, hermeneutic and the postmodern way of thinking and uh and uh, Horton tries to navigate his answer very carefully with that gentleman anyway it's worth listening to and uh, what i found in in uh, listening to this lecture is i've listened to it a couple of times and for me uh, the, the second time i got more from it than the first time for whatever reason i don't know what that is but uh uh Horton it just does a careful 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 job and he he wants to address the topic soberly academically biblically and uh, and understanding that uh, he doesn't want to create needless offense or him for him to be the offense in how he handles the topic. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Michael Horton and his lecture entitled, Is Love Winning? Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. Um, hell is not my favorite subject. Uh, I, I remember uh, talking to John Stott years ago about uh, hell. When he, you know, he has thought through some of the, the difficult questions himself. And uh, he said, that I don't mind if people disagree with my position, which was his own uh, position. Was he, he was thinking about annihilationism. He didn't embrace annihilationism, but was putting it on the map. He says, uh, all that I ask is that anyone who talks about hell talk about it with a tear in their eye. And, uh, you know, no one is going to be able to answer the objections that uh, Rob Bell and others present to a traditional doctrine of hell uh, who exhibits 
the characteristics of the very things that so many people find intolerant and, and, and uh, ab- abusive about the doctrine. Uh, finally, at the end of the day, I don't believe it is uh, abusive. I think it is uh, an essential doctrine related to the love of God, as I'll argue. But it's important for us, I think, uh, not to become the caricature, <laughs> a, a living caricature. Uh, challenges, I think, also should be seen as opportunities. Um, uh, we, we ought not to overreact when we hear things that make us sort of think about what we believe and why we believe it. We should take them as, as opportunities because in many cases, the issues that Rob Bell raises for us are the paid bill, unpaid bills of a couple of generations of taking these things for granted. Well, we all believe it. Don't ask any questions. We're not going to explain it. We're not going to defend it. Just accept it. This one's a tough pill to swallow. Just accept it. And now we have a generation of people growing up in the church, going to Christian colleges, saying that's not enough. And so let's start there. Let's, let's, let's uh, uh, instead of, of, of reacting, um, let's, uh, we're going to have a lot more of this. We're going to have a whole generation, I think, of, of people raised in evangelical churches wondering why they were never taught the explanation, the rationale for what they believe and why they believe it. If there's one doctrine that will be the first to go, <laughs> this is it. Uh, it's, it's the easiest one for us to recoil at emotionally, viscerally, uh, and morally. Rob Bell asserts in the preface that, quote, Jesus' story has been hijacked by a number of other stories. The plot has been lost, and it's time to rethink it. Uh, he says, a staggering number of people have been taught that a select few of few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyful place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. This belief is misguided and toxic, and so this book. Let me begin with uh, what I take to be some of the, the, the salient points, good points that he raises for us to, to take uh, seriously, he, I, I, one of the reasons why I think uh, I understand where he's coming from is because we were raised in the same home. Well, we weren't actually raised in the same home, but every illustration he uses is familiar to me. Uh, his grandmother had a picture of, a, of a, a cross bridging a chasm between here and there. And he says, you notice in the picture that... Everyone is crossing from here to there. And heaven for me was always somewhere else. Sometime else and somewhere else. And Jesus wasn't about redeeming this world. Jesus was my bridge out of this world. My bridge away from this world. I knew pictures like that. Uh... A lot of us were raised with the late great planet Earth. And, you know, it's all going to burn anyway, theology. Uh, well, you might as well leave your credit card debt to the Antichrist. Um, don't polish the brass on a sinking ship. Why should we be concerned about uh, this world? It's all sinking anyway. Uh, so just uh, throw them a life raft and save as many as you can. 
Uh, I remember um, uh, what, uh, my parents worked at a Christian camp, managed a Christian camp for disadvantaged kids, and, and they were even more disadvantaged uh, uh, after the camp. Uh, <laughs> because uh, at the end of every summer, uh, they would have the thief in the night. I don't know if any of you remember. If you're, yeah, I mean, those of us who are a little older than some people who are here remember Thief in the Night. I wish we'd all been ready. And, uh, wow, I, re- I really wished I had. Uh, uh, that, I saw that movie because there wasn't a lot of entertainment at Lake Tahoe, unless you went to South Shore where the casinos were, and I couldn't as a teenager. They played that every, uh, er, uh, for every group coming in of kids throughout the summer. So I think I saw it like the world record uh, maybe 12 times. And it can make you a little psycho uh, if you watch that too many times. I remember sitting up in bed uh, in a cold sweat thinking that, the, that uh, my parents were gone and I'd been left behind. It's lots of nightmares. And... Uh, you know, streets of gold, mansions. Wow, I mean, this sounds this sounds an awful lot like, uh, well, uh, Beverly Hills. And uh, yeah, there were all sorts of images I had of heaven and hell and this world in relation to Christ and redemption that I think were flawed. And Rob Bell points to a lot of those things. Now, I'm going to say later where I think he, the pendulum swings. The other way, but what he's trying to affirm, I think, here uh, in on that point is uh, of importance. Uh, it's a very pagan belief that our souls escape our bodies; that salvation is basically dying. You know, the, Plato uh, and and the Greeks believed that was redemption. Salvation was finally your soul being released from its prison house of the flesh. And that's why Christianity, one of the reasons Christianity didn't make any sense to the Greeks, was foolishness to Greeks, because the very thing they were looking forward to, (laughs) uh, Christianity contradicted at the most important point. Uh, You know, you're going to tell me it's good news that I'm going to have this body forever? Well, it's going to be glorified. It's going to be new. But I'm, going to, I'm not going to be disembodied soul, disembodied spirit, a spark of the divine. No, you never were a spark of the divine. Your soul is as, as created as your fingernail. You've never been a part of God. You'll never be a part of God. You'll always be a creature. And your soul is just much creature as your body is. But you'll be raised, body, soul, as one person on the last day. And that salvation how? Now, that's how, how the Greeks responded. And I think there are a lot of popular on the ground, not necessarily countenanced by, by mainstream theology, but, but a lot of practical views of heaven and hell on the ground that make it sound like a Gnostic, that's that heresy, escape of the soul from the body and escape of Christians from this world. He also stresses that it's... Uh, Cosmic. This salvation is cosmic, not just individual. He says a gospel that leaves out its cosmic scope will always feel small. And I have to say, this is one of the things that really attracted me, speaking from my own tradition, to Reformation theology. Uh, uh, J.I. Packer, uh, 
has often said that Reformation theology is world-embracing and world-affirming, whereas fundamentalism tends to be world-denying, world-rejecting. And I think that's something that Rob Bell points out here. A gospel that leaves out its cosmic scope will always feel small. That's true. Paul tells us not only our souls, but our bodies will be raised on the last day. In fact, in Romans 8, he says that the redemption of our, uh, our final redemption is the resurrection of the body. We're not fully redeemed when we die and our souls are in the presence of the Lord. That's not, salvation isn't finished yet. We're not saved. We're not fully and finally redeemed. We're justified. But we're not fully and finally redeemed until our bodies are raised incorruptible. And Paul says, furthermore, the whole creation will be released from its bondage to decay when this happens. So it's certainly cosmic in its scope. I always think, you know, uh, when people describe, when my, uh, a lot of the people I grew up with, uh, in the churches I grew up with, that kind of model of heaven, I kind of wondered sometimes if I really wanted to go. You know, I, I, I was never good at, at piano lessons, so I'm thinking playing harps, bouncing on clouds for endless days is not exactly my idea of a good time. I mean, that could get old after a while. But that's the picture that a lot of people have. And I'm not surprised that people find heaven boring because it's so defined over against the earthy, the bodily, the 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 joys and pleasures that we experience now that are affirmed as part of being human, part of being creaturely. So salvation, not escape. Cosmic, not just individual. And uh, thirdly, religious smugness. I think that he makes some... Uh, 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 I'm not sure that I agree with, 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 with how he responds to it, but I understand what he is getting at when he is, recoils against this kind of smugness. Uh, for example, the way uh, he quotes someone who said, uh, Gandhi is in hell, which is the foil for him then saying, oh, really? How do you know this? Have you, have you been told this? And, and so forth. Uh, he's clearly reacting against a tendency among some to nearly gloat over the divine judgment of other people. Uh, and that's a kind of attempt to establish our own righteousness. That's something that we have to, to very much be on guard against ourselves. And then also, uh, uh, as another part of this religious smugness, the dogmatism. Uh, he says a lot of people uh, respond to questions that I'm raising in this book by simply saying, we don't discuss these things here. Case closed. Um, that's true. That's true. There are, there are circles where that is indeed the case. And so we need to, I think, take all of these concerns that he raises here to heart. Uh, and let me now lay out what I take at least to be his main uh, thesis and its arguments and see if uh, I'm not sure that he would uh, uh, agree that this is what he's saying, but I hope he would. Um, first of all, the logical case and then the exegetical case. In other words, first of all, how he's reasoning through the question and then how he argues his case from Scripture. Uh, 
First of all, when it comes to the logical arguments, uh, God. It's important to see, uh, I think, uh, that for Rob Bell, God's principal attribute is love. I mean, he says that. It's very clear. Love wins. And that's the title of the book. Love wins over everything, even God's justice and whatever other attributes. Love is God's defining attribute. And that means, logically, hell has no place. Just logically. Get to the exegetical questions later. But can God do this, he asks, or even allow this and still claim to be a loving God? That's not an exegetical question. That is a logical question. And so it's important, I think, to distinguish his logical arguments from his exegetical arguments. Not that he's illogical in his exegesis or unexegetical in his logic, but just to, to see how uh, these two play out. There are two types, and again, I hope he would agree with this, their uh, uh, description of where he fits. There are generally two different types of arguments for universalism in evangelical circles. There is a growing tendency, growing movement in evangelical theology towards universalism. And it, it often takes one of two uh, different routes. The first is your classic Arminian free will theism argument that Clark Pinnock and others have pressed. Uh, namely, that uh, God has made it possible for the greatest number to be saved, even if they don't believe in Christ. They don't exercise personal faith in Christ. They're saved by Christ anyway out of the barest of something that they did. And this is very close to the Roman Catholic view since Vatican II of the anonymous Christian. Uh, for those who do what lies within them and who through no fault of their own by their works show that they have inward grace. They, too, are saved by Christ even if they do not believe in him, even if they are atheists. That is a view that many evangelical Arminians are taking when they embrace universalism. Then there's another view. You could call it a, a, a kind of Augustinian or, or even Calvinistic universalism. I know that sounds odd. Um, it's, it, it, it's associated with people like Karl Barth, for example, who who said we can't say that each and every person will be saved because God is sovereign and you can't tie his hands, you can't say for sure, but uh, that's where I think it's going to go because ultimately God gets what he wants. While the Arminian is saying it, God at least holds out the possibility that people can say no finally and fully, even in a post-mortem new opportunity to say yes or no after death. But even if they, say, if they say no, even then, God is bound to let the, their no be no. And Bart says, no, God's yes is louder than your no. God will have his man or his woman. Rudolf, uh, or, uh, Jürgen Moltmann, more recently, has said, we can't even... We, we, we ought not to postpone the question about whether everyone will be saved. Of course everyone will be saved. To say that 
that anyone will be lost because of their free will is to be worse than an Arminian. It's to be a Pelagian. Scratching your head, okay, wow. Okay, how does this happen, that traditional Calvinists are Arminians because we you know, believe that people have to believe in Christ? And so you have two very different arguments for universalism. Two totally different logical arguments. One based on the inviolability of human freedom, the other on the inviolability of divine freedom. Now what I find interesting uh, in, in Bell's book is that two, the, both of these types seem to be present in his arguments. He seems to alternate back and forth between these two positions. For example, here's an, uh, uh, an example of the Augustinian side of his argument. Will only some be saved and the rest be damned? Will all people be saved? Or will God not get what he wants? Does this magnificent, mighty, marvelous God fail in the end? But then here's the Arminian. Well, I shouldn't say Arminian because most Arminians are not universalists. This is the the originist uh, side of the argument, because he, and Rob Bell says he goes back to origin for, for, for this. So it's not imputing anything to him that he doesn't himself uh, embrace. Origen was a second century, late second century church father who believed that all spiritual beings, no matter, because he was influenced by this Greek way of thinking, nothing material but all spirit beings, will be united again to the one, the divine. They will have to go through successive reincarnations, perhaps, uh, be enlightened and morally purified. This is where purgatory came from, largely from, uh, from origin. But after they go through the purgative fires, they will all be spared. And there is that side to his argument. Although God is powerful and mighty, he says, when it comes to the human heart, God has to play by the same rules we do. God has to respect our freedom to choose to the very end, even at the risk of the relationship itself. I'm not going to spend any time uh, uh, going through his view of uh, human nature. Uh, I'll touch on that in a moment. Uh, the gospel... Uh, God is doing a new work through Jesus, he writes, calling all people to human solidarity. Everybody is a brother or sister. Every equals children of the God who shows no favoritism. To reject this new social order is to reject Jesus, the very movement of God in flesh and blood. And how are the few saved in the traditional view, he asks? Chance? Luck? Random selection? Being born in the right place, family or country? having a youth pastor who relates better to kids, God choosing you instead of others, what kind of faith is that? Or more important, what kind of God is that? And whenever people claim that one group is in, saved, accepted by God, forgiven, enlightened, redeemed, and everybody else isn't, why is it that those who make this claim are almost always part of the group that's in? And he says, uh, is this the sacred calling of Christians to announce that there is no hope? Uh, that is for someone who remains an atheist to the very end. Now some of the exegesis, and I'm going to have to run through this very uh, quickly here, but just to get a 
picture of uh, where he's going with the exegetical arguments. He talks about the uh, parable of the rich man and Lazarus. He's dead, but he hasn't died. He's in Hades, but he still hasn't died the kind of death that actually brings life. The chasm separating them is a widening gap between rich and poor. Or responding to Romans 10, where Paul says that faith comes by hearing the word of God, and that's why they need, we need preachers uh, who are sent to announce the good news. Bell asks, if our salvation, our future, our destiny is dependent on others bringing the message to us, teaching us, showing us, what happens if they don't do their part? What if the missionary gets a flat tire? This raises another far more disturbing question. Is your future in someone else's hands? Which raises another question. Is someone else's eternity resting in your hands? And then he, he brings together a cacophony of passages that, that he thinks are at best confusing, at worst perhaps contradictory about how we're saved. Some seem to say by grace. Some seem to say by works, and then under works you have all sorts of different works. Well, which is it? And, and so all throughout, all throughout the uh, exegetical argument, there is, there is a questioning that is, that is intended, I think, to dislodge us from just assuming certain interpretations of these passages. Uh, Okay, I'll, much, much the same from the other examples that I was going to, to cite. So let me just move now to the evaluation of his arguments. First of all, logical. And I'll go along the order of presenting uh, a summary of his arguments. God, start with, with God here. Are all of God's attributes subservient to his love? If that's true, then Christ did not need to, to uh, the Son of God did not need to become flesh, suffer humiliation on earth, be nailed to a Roman cross, and suffer the wrath of God. There is no hint that, that anyone is under the wrath of God or that the cross of Christ in any way has anything to do with God, has anything to do with propitiating an objective anger and justice on God's part. That's, I, I suggest when you, when you make that move, it's easy for you to get rid of hell because hell only really has an objective existence, an objective reality, because it's an answer to an objective problem that has to be objectively dealt with, justice. But the cross is where God himself went to hell for us. That's where he endured our punishment, our suffering, and that is the gospel. That is the good news. Far more important than whether or not we lose hell is whether we lose the gospel. That's, that's, the, that's the heart of things, and that's what con, con, really concerns me most, as I'll bring up here in a moment. Us. It seems to me, and I, I, this one I, probably uh, Rob Bell will not, uh, would, would not uh, uh, agree with, but I, I can't help, after reading his book, but, but conclude that he thinks that we're basically good we could be a lot better. We could be a lot nicer to each other. Uh, we could be a lot more just, a lot more loving in our dealings with one another. And if we did, if we followed Jesus' example, who got all this started, then we could have heaven now. But instead, we insist on having hell now. We're, we're turning the, 
the world into our own hell, both a personal and collective hell. And so the gospel for, for uh, Bell seems to repeat the nearly ubiquitous call we hear today to live the gospel and be the gospel. You just say one word about that and then I'll hit and run. It is a category mistake. You cannot live the gospel. You cannot be the gospel. And that's good news for everyone sitting next to you. (laughs) The good news is not that I am the gospel. I will never live the gospel. Don't ever put any faith in me and my Christian living. The only one worthy of your faith is God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Hold on to him. Don't hold on to me or those around you. Don't hold on to, your, to, to the godliness of, of, uh, of the, the, the uh, Christians around you. Hold on to Christ because Christians will let you down every time. That doesn't justify letting people down. <laughs> but it is a fact that that will happen. And you don't want people's faith to be in, uh, in anyone but Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come to start the redemption thing and then have us all kind of get involved. Uh, He came to redeem sinners, and then what we're doing is announcing that reconciling work of Christ to the world. They often appeal uh, uh, to 2 Corinthians, where Paul says... uh, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and he's given us this ministry of reconciliation. Well, this is what we're doing when we are involved in social justice. And I would say no. Uh, First of all, social justice is an obligation we have, not because of the Great Commission, but because of the Great Commandment. I was talking about this very uh, today. Uh, It is an obligation all human beings have, not just Christians. Uh, the, The Great Commission is is distinct. The Great Commission is unique here. That's the first thing. The second thing is, Paul tells us, the the reconciliation he's talking about is that God was, past tense, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting, and then he tells us what that meant, not counting their sins against them, not, not making the world a better place but not counting people's trespasses against them. And he gave to us, apostles, the ministry of reconciliation, which is, he says, the message of reconciliation. So we are his ambassadors. Well, now that's totally different. We're not little kings. We're ambassadors. He's the king. He's the redeemer. We are not completing his redemptive work. We are not extending the incarnation. We are not living the gospel. He is the gospel. He is redemption. He is the wisdom of God. He is our righteousness. And that's the only thing worth proclaiming to the world. That is a larger concern that I have for evangelicalism generally that is prominent in this book, but certainly not uh, this book alone. Okay, we are going to pause right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
Because all the letters of the Bible are red letters, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Thank you for downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. What else? You out there! For to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer! Shut up! Definitely sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no such no, no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas... Hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. 
Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Right, we're back. Warning, you don't want to be getting your theology from origin. Yeah, the, the church ended up condemning his uh, theology in uh, councils that followed him. True. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. Uh, You can support us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, there are two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do that by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send out to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, before we get into uh, the uh, the next part of this uh, lecture, as well as the Q&A, this is going to be our last commercial break in this uh, edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, I, I want to – something a lot of people don't realize – in that uh, Marty Python sketch that we do on the uh, Lectio Divina, Rob Bell's Lectio Divina, actually all of the stuff regarding the Lectio Divina itself was read directly from, directly from um, a Lectio Divina PDF put out by uh, by Mars Hill Bible Church, uh, where Rob Bell is, uh, you know, he, at the time that this was published, he was the only teaching pastor, uh, you know, the head pe- teaching pastor. Now he's co-pastor with uh, Shane Hips. Anyway, so you want to you – know, this you know, as crazy and goofy as that particular so-called spiritual practice is and what it's supposed to be for, 
That is actually you know, in, in the script when we uh, wrote that edition of Marty Python's Flying Circus uh, Church, we actually just took it word for word off of Mars Hill Bible Church's Lectio Divina um, handout that they have there. And I think it's still available at their, uh, at their website. Yeah, if you want to you know, check it out, uh, the, you know, look, Google Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and look for their downloadable PDF on uh, Lectio Divina. Anyway, um, so here's the, uh, the balance of the lecture that, um, that Michael Horton gave on, uh, on uh, Is Love Winning, you know, kind of a, an analysis of the book Love Wins. And then, uh, and then after the lecture, he'll go right into Q&A. So uh, we'll, we'll, I'll talk to you guys on the other end of uh, the lecture. Here we go. Exegetical. Again, I'm going to have to be very quick here. There are basically two Gentile misunderstandings. I mentioned one. One Gentile misunderstanding of biblical eschatology, that is what redemption involves at the end of time. One Gentile misunderstanding is to see it as a vertical ascent out of the body, away from the world of matter. I've already talked about that. The other tendency is to see, uh, 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 is a Gentile tendency to see the kingdom as something that evolves historically, horizontally, within this world, within this age. That history itself is, is impregnated with all this possibility, and we just have to tap it and cooperate with it. Um, I, Bell is, is great at avoiding the first. <laughs> Gentile misunderstanding. My fear is in his exegesis, he displays a tendency to drift toward that progressivism that has been uh, with us sim- certainly since the Enlightenment. Uh, he's right about the cosmic scope of redemption. I agree with him there. The, the, it's cosmic. But his mistake is to treat this as a all-inclusive of every person, he's really following origin, then that means even Satan. I don't know if he takes it quite that far, but he says he's following origin, which oddly enough, he says, is at the heart, the very heart of the earliest Christian tradition. He was condemned by the East and the West at two ecumenical councils. Uh, His views were condemned. Uh, So he wasn't at the very heart of the earliest Christian church. Uh, So I, I, I agree with him on the what question. What is redeemed? The world. And that doesn't mean just spirit stuff. It means material stuff. As C.S. Lewis said, God likes the idea of matter. He made it. <laughs> and he's redeemed it. So it's all-inclusive in that sense. Uh, but first of all, it's not all-inclusive in terms of each and every individual. Uh, I would argue, and it's also important to distinguish what Christ will do at the end of the age from what he has already accomplished and what he's doing in the middle. Uh, One of the things that comes up in his book is uh, uh, Matthew 25. There in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus uh, says, there are some things that are going to happen very immediately. In fact, some of you are standing here who will not die before these things happen. Not one stone will be left upon another of this temple that you see over here. 
It'll all be turned to rubble. And that happened in 70 AD. There's nobody who doubts that. You know, everybody recognizes that that occurred. Jesus prophesied that and it happened. But he says, this is not yet the end. And then he describes what sounds like a very long period of time. There will be earthquakes and famines in diverse places and wars and da 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 But don't think the end has come. And then there will arise false prophets. And it's like he's you know, going through millennia of history here. And then uh, he says, and then the go- the, so the gospel will be preached throughout all the nations and then the end will come. The whole point of Jesus' ministry right now is the gospel going to the ends of the earth and him interceding for those who have already embraced it. That is the whole point of Jesus' priestly ministry right now. When he returns, he will return not with respect to forgiveness of sins, the scripture says, but in judgment uh, of, uh, uh, of the world and salvation and deliverance of his people. And then, and then, there will be universal peace and justice in exactly the concrete, earthy terms that Rob Bell talks about. But the danger, in my view, is what we call an over-realized eschatology. In other words, jumping the eschatological gun. Closing those two events. Collapsing the future fulfillment, this phase two into phase one. When you do that, when you do that, there's no time to repent. When you do that, there's no time for the Holy Spirit to descend and create a believing community in this passing evil age. And that's why I think at the end of the day, the gospel becomes the law in Rob Bell's approach. Now, in the approach that he's criticizing, it may, it may have been, if you dance, drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do, you'll go to hell. For him, it's more like if you, if you, if you aren't involved in social justice, if you are not personally doing everything in your power to love your neighbor as yourself, then you'll go to hell. Hell defined now as your experience of this world existentially as someone who is at the party but sitting, sitting it out in the corner. That's how he describes hell. Hell is what you're going through right now when you're at the party, but you refuse to party. And so it's existential. And my question is, is either one of those a gospel? Is either one of those good news? The gospel creates good works. The gospel isn't good works. Except the good works of Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that we can possibly hold on to. We want to see Christians more engaged in social justice. Works of service. Loving neighbors. Not just being uh, concerned about consumption, consumption, and more consumption, and how can I be entertained, and how can I turn my church into the uh, Parks and Recreation uh, Committee of the Boomer Generation. Bell and others are absolutely right, absolutely right to be frustrated, I think, uh, with a whole generation that seems intoxicated with itself. 
And, and we have to examine our own hearts in this matter and, and ask. But we have to also say the law has been tried and tried and tried again as a source of salvation. Very, very good laws cannot make people holy. Only the gospel, only the gospel can make new creatures. It's totally counterintuitive, completely counterintuitive. But there is an objective wrath of God. There is, an, therefore, an objective hell. And because, because the bad news is that bad, the good news is so much greater. There is an objective God who is objectively holy and love, who has found a way to be just and the justifier of the ungodly. And he has done that in Christ, not in you. Howsoever good those works may be, that should be the fruit of faith. He has not done it through you. He has done it in his son. And that is what the redeeming love of God looks like. Um, okay. Um, I, how much time do I have? Am I, oh, about Okay. Okay. All right. No, don't worry. I'm not going back too many pages here. Here's Here's an example of, of, of uh, the, his, his view of hell as uh, what we make of our time right here and now. Um, uh, he says that uh, hell is Rwanda and rape. So when people, don't, when people say they don't believe in hell and they don't like the word sin, my first response is to ask, have you sat and talked with a family who just found out their child has been molested repeatedly over a number of years by a relative? And that's what we find in Jesus' teaching about hell. A volatile mixture of images, pictures, and metaphors that describe the very real experiences and consequences of rejecting our God-given goodness and humanity. Something we are all free to do anytime, anywhere, with anyone. He uses hyperbole often. Other times he sounds just plain violent. But when you've sat with a wife who's found out that her husband has been cheating on her for years, and you see the concentric rings of pain that are going to emanate from this one man's choices, in that moment, Jesus' warnings don't seem that over the top or drastic. They seem perfectly spot on. Some agony needs agonizing language. Some destruction makes you think of fire. Some betrayal actually feels like you've been burned. Some injustices do cause things to heat up. So it's all subjective. Um, he says uh, in Matthew 10 concerning the judgment of the people in Capernaum being worse than the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, in Genesis 19, uh, there's a historical narrative of an actual historical event in which these cities were destroyed by fire, and that's what Jesus appeals to. But in Ezekiel 16, it's promised that people re will return and God will restore the fortune of of these cities in the future. So uh, Bell draws this conclusion. What appeared to be a final forever smoldering, smoking verdict regarding their destiny wasn't. What happened to the, what, ha what appeared to be over isn't. Ezekiel says that there was destruction 
but there will be restoration. Then in Matthew 10, Jesus warns the people living in the village of Capernaum, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for you. More bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah? He tells highly committed, pious, religious people that it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than them on judgment day. So there's still hope. And if there's still hope for Sodom and Gomorrah, what does that say about all the other Sodoms and Gomorrahs? may not be the first uh, conclusion you get exegetically from Matthew, uh, from Matthew 10. Another example is the way he takes aeon uh, uh, in uh, Matthew 25 to mean age or period of time. Um, and kolodzo as pruning or trimming concluding, therefore, that the everlasting punishment to which Jesus refers is actually, quote, a period of pruning or a time of trimming, an intense experience of correction. And so he talks about the flames of heaven being hot. As Origen talked about purgation, going through these levels of purgation before you could finally enter paradise. And again, I say, well, I mean, this is the good news we can take to the world of suffering people is that after this, Short time of suffering, however horrible it is. After this, even, even though we try our best in loving our neighbor to ameliorate the conditions that they're in currently, whatever it is, everlasting life involves absolutely no second-class status, absolutely no more suffering, no more. No more injustice, no more pain. Um, will all be saved or will God not get what he wants? Does this magnificent, mighty, marvelous God fail uh, in the end? That's the question that uh, he asks um, repeatedly throughout. And uh, let me close with, uh, with uh, an observation about Christ's work. Because as I say, I think this is the, the most important thing here is what are the implications? If we... If we follow his logic and his exegesis on the doctrine of hell, in my view, we have no reason not to take the same course that Protestant liberalism did because it's the same argument, the same process of rejecting the substitutionary atonement and the deity of Christ. Uh, now, he... He, although he doesn't reject the, the substitutionary atonement, he says it's one of those metaphors that the scriptures use to make something understandable to people in that age. It's not taken to be, shouldn't be taken to be literal truth. That's pretty close to rejecting it. <laughs> but it follows the logic. I hope that other things won't, uh, that the dominoes won't fall. Uh, uh, but the logic is, is pointing in that direction. He says, there's nothing wrong with talking and singing about how the blood will never lose its power and nothing but the blood will save us. These are powerful metaphors. But we don't live any longer in a culture in which people offer animal sacrifices to the gods. People did live that way for thousands of years, and there are pockets of primitive cultures around the world that do continue to understand sin, guilt, and atonement in those ways. This is exactly how the old liberals talked about the Jewishness of sacrificial Christianity that believed in the blood substitution. 
But most of us don't. What the first Christians did was look around them and put the Jesus story in language their listeners would understand. They were reading their world, looking for ways to communicate this epic event in ways their listeners could grasp. So the first seeker-sensitive preachers. Um, Very briefly, first, the reference point for Christ's substitutionary atonement is the sacrificial system instituted by God for the nation of Israel, not Greek paganism. Second, the Christians who wrote the hymns to which he refers were no closer to the world of pagan sacrifice than we are. Third, Christ's work on the cross was not an object lesson. He actually accomplished the redemption of his people. It's not a metaphor for a way or a way of putting things that people in their day or our day can understand. It is the fact of God in human history. God accomplished a lot more than a substitutionary sacrifice, but if he didn't accomplish that, nothing else was accomplished at the cross. It was an utter failure if it didn't achieve that. I said my last. I have, do I have three minutes? Okay. Um, ironically, there is an ironic, and then I, I do want to finish on, a, on a, an upbeat note. I say it's ironic because... Having done so well to critique a Greek or Platonic uh, way of thinking of redemption as this timeless, eternal escape from the realm of history and matter, in some ways, both there on his discussion of the atonement and blood sacrifice, uh, and now here in the quote I'm about to give, you get an almost, reach, almost a return to that kind of Greek Platonic conception. He talks about death as a natural portal to life, whereas Paul calls it the last enemy. He says, for nature to spring to life, it first has to die. So here's a universal principle. One of the great things about Christianity is that it, it's so uninterested in universal principles. Sorry, if you're a philosopher, an ethicist, Mathematician, uh, this, is, this, this is a historical religion. This is not about universal principles. The things that Christianity is most excited about are things that happened in dateable history, things that weren't always true but became true on a certain date. Everything in the Apostles' Creed is dateable, even under Pontius Pilate. In what other religion does the guy who crucified your Messiah make it into the Creed? Anyway. To date it. The whole purpose is to date it. Uh, for nature to spring to life, it first has to die. Okay, so here, here's the principle. Death, then resurrection. This is true for ecosystems, food chains, the seasons. It's true all across the environment. Death gives way to life. Death is the, then why did Christ have to be raised if that's just the way it always is? Uh, spring always follows uh, fo- uh, winter. I never do get the seasons right. Death is the... I live in California. We don't have them. (laughs) Summer follows early summer. Uh, (laughs) Death is the engine of life in the relational realms as well. So when the writers of the Bible talk about Jesus' resurrection bringing new life to the world, they aren't talking about a new concept. They're talking about something that has always been true. It's how the world works. Although the cross is often understood as a religious icon, it's a symbol of an elemental reality, one we all experience every time we take a bite of food. 
Once again, death and rebirth are as old as the world. There is an energy in the world, a spark, an electricity that everything is plugged into. The Greeks call it Zoe, the mystics call it spirit, and Obi-Wan called it the force. (laughs) And that's why he says, as soon as the door is open to Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and Baptists from Cleveland, many Christians become very uneasy saying that Jesus then doesn't matter anymore, the cross is irrelevant, it doesn't matter what you believe, and so forth. Not true. What Jesus does is declare that he and he alone is saving everybody. And then he leaves the door way, way open. Uh, Like Christ's death and resurrection, he says, the word and the sacraments are merely symbolic of eternal truths in the sacred cosmos. These rituals are true for us because they're true for everybody. They unite us because they unite everybody. These are signs, glimpses, and tastes of what is true for all people in all times and places. We simply name the mystery present in all the world, the gospel already announced to every creature under heaven. He is the sacred power present in every dimension of creation. And so there's a tendency for the gospel to be collapsed into natural law. Paul says that we all know the law by nature. But in chapter 3, he says it's the gospel that has to be announced. It's a strange word from a strange God that surprises us and catches us off guard. Okay, so I share the sense of confusion that Bell had growing up. I had uh, uh, lots of the the same areas of confusion, mixed messages. Uh, This is my father's world, but this is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Okay, which, wow, the mind reels. I share his verdict that some churches are toxic places. Sure, absolutely. Quote, that God is angry, demanding a slave driver, and so that God's religion becomes a system of sin management, constantly working and angling to avoid what surely must be the coming wrath that lurks behind every corner, thought and sin, end quote. I see that. I get it. But I wonder if he's throwing off one form of legalism only to embrace another. It's not that the legalism finally has changed. It's that the laws you have to obey in order to create your personal heaven rather than hell on earth have changed. I just don't see enough of Christ and uh, his work and the gospel uh, there. There are are two ways to paralyze a good exchange. And both... Uh, are a bit of a power play that actually stops questioning. The one is to forbid the questions. And Rob Bell is absolutely right. There's a lot of that done today. Man, when, when people, especially young, younger people, they're, when they're teenagers, don't have a Sunday school teacher or catechist uh, uh, teach them who uh, doesn't like them to ask questions or question the catechism or, 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 or uh, you know, really press things on what, If this is true in the Bible, what about that? Have someone who just loves that, just absolutely loves that. The grammar stage is the time when they're just memorizing things, but not at the. If you keep them from asking questions at that stage, you are, you you may be, you may be preparing atheists. You're certainly preparing people to ask the questions in a way that may be a pendulum swing because they have not really heard good answers. That's one way. But the other way is to bury the reader in accusations disguised as questions. 
especially when the barrage includes caricatures rather than actual positions that people hold. And, and that's my concern at some point in reading Rob Bell's book. Before you can recover, reflect, and articulate a response, he's already released another barrel uh, of drive-by interrogating questions. And it's hard to keep up that pace. It's, the, the net effect is psychological, not intellectual. It wears you down emotionally. But what you really need is to have questions and a conversation and a discussion about these issues that allows you to reflect and, uh, and respond. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, though, the Bible doesn't give us speculations. Rob Bell says that we're all speculating on this, these questions. That, I don't believe that's the case. If we are, we should stop, because hell is a horrible thing to speculate about. Of all the things to speculate about, hell is probably the worst. The only reason we have to talk about hell, the only reason we must talk about hell, is because God talks about it. And in that case, it's not a speculation, it's a revelation. Any questions? Okay. Do you want to take a break and then do that? Oh, okay. So there are mics at the end uh, of the aisles, the two aisles here. So go on up and someone, don't be bashful, someone can kick it off. Right, thank you. I, well, I have to admit, I, uh, I have never met Rob Bell. Uh, we have uh, been interviewed uh, uh, by the same uh, uh, hosts on this issue, on this subject, but uh, I haven't, uh, and so we've talked about what each other has said, but we haven't had a chance to talk to each other, and I would like that very much. Uh, uh, I would like to pursue that opportunity. Um, I like, I, I think that if, 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 I, if, if we met, I would like him because uh, we did grow up in, in a similar background and I can, I can identify with a lot of the, the pictures. Um, but I can't comment on the personal stuff because I, I, don't, I, I don't know him. But wish I could say more. Yes. Hey, uh, thanks, Doctor, for coming up for this. Um, I'm just interested in what sort of the question of the imagery of hell that we find in Scripture, and um, I mean, Bell sort of touched on this when he talked about all the diverse pictures we have of judgment. Um, but just one con one concern, I guess, for me, which I'm surprised he didn't develop more, is that at least some doctrines of hell seem to seem to grab the imagery from some passages of scripture of the punishment, but then sort of ignore the criteria for the punishment of the crime. I mean, we have Jesus saying, if you say you fool, you'd be liable to hell. You know, if, if you're out of your hand, cause you to sin, pluck it out so you don't go to hell. And the sheep and the goats, 
And it doesn't say anything explicitly about faith. It's about people who are helping hungry and lonely folks without even knowing they're helping Christ. And, um, like the, you know, like the fire as well, there's all this language around there about being judged by works. Um, so, I mean, I think we all have to supplement those passages in some way, but it just seems inconsistent if we insist, okay, the punishment of these passages we have to take in a straightforward manner, but then we reinterpret um, sort of the crime that's around it, the criteria that are around it. And so, I mean, it doesn't, uh, I mean, it doesn't mean we don't end up taking those things seriously, but I don't know if that makes sense. It just seems like sometimes we can be inconsistent if we're saying we have to take the punishment in a straightforward way, but then we, you know, then we reinterpret the crime that's around. So that so that it won't turn into sal- into judgment by works. Is that what you're well, saying? Well, I mean, for for various reasons, often this becomes that thing. Because if you look through, especially Matthew, I mean, that that's probably the most prevalent um, mm-hmm. judgment and hell imagery and fire. And you know, if you search that in Matthew, it's it's pretty scary because it says. You know, it's, it doesn't talk about faith or grace as much as I would like it to. You know, it says, I mean, at least I would venture to say every guy in here, if they haven't plucked out their right eye, they're probably not really taking that. Yeah. 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 It's kind of the hermeneutical principle of taking some parts in a straightforward way and mm-hmm. the rest of it not. I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, I, I think that this is why we have to be very careful about deciding a priori. Uh, we're pre, we're pre, predisposed to read a particular passage in the light of all of the other passages that we've read. We can't help that. We shouldn't try to help that. You can't start from scratch or we wouldn't know anything at all. Uh, But at the same time, we have to be very careful that a particular passage is allowed to make us rethink all of the other passages that we came to it with. Um, That's what happens during great uh, paradigm-shifting periods of of church history. I think you're quite right that uh, the force, uh, not only there, but uh, with Jesus and the rich young ruler, for example, is to, is to show what God's law really requires. If you're really going to take this law seriously, and if you, are going, if you think that you are justified before God by how well you've kept it, then let's put you to the test. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That is what it requires. He wasn't playing. That is what the law really requires. Uh, and one day, the poor will have everything that they want and as an, an that they need, and as an anticipation of that, the poor have everything they need in the church, or the church isn't fulfilling its diaconal responsibilities. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a sign of that. The church is a sign of that. But that's why I think too, in uh, you know when he says if, you're 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 in danger of hell, uh, even if you uh, commit adultery in your heart. You're in danger of hell. In other words, you're liable to it. You're liable to that punishment even with what you think is the smallest sin because there's no such thing as a small sin. Every sin is committed with a high hand which is equivalent to a certain finger gesture on the 95. 
that's what the Old Testament means by sinning with a high hand. Uh, it's, it, it means not just, whoops, sorry. Uh, it's something bigger than that. Every sin is ultimately sinning with a high hand. Um, but then we have to look, at, I think you're quite right, we have to look at, at the, the context and say, now, let's not tell Jesus right at the outset what he couldn't possibly be saying. And then figure out what there, what there are as alternatives. But I do think once we look at the context more closely, sorry I'm going on too long with this answer, but when we look at it more closely, Jesus is specifically, they're uh, talking in the, in the context of the Olivet Discourse. We can't separate the sheep and the goats business from the Olivet Discourse. He's talking about the last judgment in the context of the suffering he's preparing his followers for in the immediate aftermath of his departure. They will flog you. They will throw you in prison. They will uh, deprive you of life. Even your family members will turn you into the police. It's that that gives the context for you visited me when I was in prison. You cared for me when I was uh, homeless and hungry. Uh, these, were, these were saints who were on the lamb. And he was preparing the, the body of Christ to take care of uh, fellow sheep. And uh, uh, those, those who renounce that obligation are really renouncing their faith in the context of that suffering and that persecution. And that's how the early church interpreted uh, not risking your own life for the sake of your, your brothers and sisters. Uh, so I... I think that is an, an interpretation that isn't explaining it away, but trying to understand the, the, the con, immediate context of the discourse. Okay. Yeah, I appreciate it. I, and I'll, yeah, I also have a voice, but I guess I can just hear Bill saying if, if the criteria for avoiding the punishment is not the end of the story, then why can't we also say that the punishment that comes, comes out is not the end of the story? Well, the cry in that interview, yeah. Yeah. Well, the criteria there would be just as as ultimate because we're not justified by works. Uh, we're not sa- saved by works, but we're saved for works, unto good works, and. Uh, 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 you know, therefore, if, there, if, if, if faith isn't uh, producing uh, works, then we have no bo- reason to believe that faith is really present. And I don't think that's at all avoiding the question. I think that's a way of, of dealing with, at face value, with the seriousness of taking our responsibilities of loving uh, our neighbors, and especially those of the household of faith, even to the point of uh, of defending them with our own with our own lives. Thank you. Sure. Uh, hi. Hi. Uh, you mentioned earlier, excuse me, um, kind of about how Rob Bell's kind of view is that uh, God's ultimate characteristic is love, um, and you mentioned kind of that you thought like I guess justice. Say that's kind of the ultimate thing that he cares about, or I've heard as well that like the pursuit of glory is kind of what 
we care about most. Um, yeah. Good question. I'm, I'm so glad you asked that. Yeah, uh, it's a very important question. Uh, this is the, the, the doctrine of simplicity is, is so important uh, here. The doctrine of simplicity says that God is not made up of his attributes. You can't say that God has holiness, God has righteousness, God has justice, God has love, God has goodness. No, God is justice, love, goodness, so forth. Uh, and the reason we talk about one attribute after another is because we can't talk about them at the same time. We're not God. But God is all of this at once, without division, without dividing these attributes up. His love is always just. His grace is always holy. So on and so forth. Uh, his power is always exercised wisely. All of his attributes work together in every event. So it, it would be just as bad to say that love is his greatest attribute or sovereignty is his most important attribute uh, or, or uh, his glory is his greatest attribute. Uh, as it would be to say that his love is his greatest attribute. If you say that God's glory is really who God is, or God's love is really who God is, or God's justice is really who God is, you're worsh- the, the danger, at least, is that you're now worshiping an idol. You're worshiping an attribute rather than God. And the doctrine of simplicity is something that has been used in church history, basically to say that God is is unified. He's not divided. And the danger, I think, in both in old Protestant liberalism and a lot of pietist evangelical uh, theology uh, has been to deny simplicity in favor of God's love, which trumps all the other attributes, and therefore, if taken to a logical conclusion, makes the cross unnecessary. Does that... The cross is the great place where it's, it's like this flash where the hidden God becomes almost fully revealed. There's this lightning flash. This is all of his attributes. All of his attributes. They're just get a glimpse of all of these undivided attributes, all simultaneously. Justice, mercy, peace, love, wrath, all of it right there on Jesus. sounds similar to what Lewis is saying here where he says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But then there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. And he says, it is not a question of God sending us 
But in each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. And kind of, I think that's really going along the same idea that hell is something within us, a not living in God's love, um, that essentially the judgment of God against our sin then mm-hmm. will be him saying, thy will be done. Yeah. I'm going to let you go into that. And that, that kind of corresponds to what Paul teaches in Romans 1, where it says the wrath of God is revealed against mankind in that he gave them over to their sin over and over. So um, I'm just kind of wanting to get your views on, you know, in Scripture there seems to be this idea that part of God's judgment is giving them over to their sin. Mm-hmm. But do you think that's the whole story? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think it's quite right when we say that the reality of heaven, the realities of heaven begin now. We have everlasting life now. Because uh, Christ is the first fruits of those who sleep. And because he has been raised, the rest of his body is now, even now, enjoying some of the uh, morsels of the age to come. The opposite can't be said. I don't think there's any biblical support anywhere for, uh, for, for uh, uh, there being a kind of uh, forerunner for unbelievers so that they now experience hell in the present. Uh, those who are finally condemned on the last day experience hell already now in the present. Um, as a as a as a an existential foretaste. So I, first of all, I just say there there are all kinds of passages I would point to to show that heaven is already in a an already not yet way, an incipient way being experienced uh, by by uh, believers in Christ. But that there isn't any corresponding passages to support the idea of unbelievers having a foretaste of hell. Uh, in, in fact, I think it's a mi- misunderstanding uh, of, 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 in a lot of our evangelism to imagine that unbelievers are unhappier than we are. <laughs> I don't know where we got that idea. Uh, a lot of times becoming a Christian makes you more unhappy. Uh, it's, it, you know, it involves more suffering, certainly more uh, wrestling. Um, be- before you were a Christian, you didn't wrestle with sin. Um, didn't have, you know? You might wrestle against losing your job over it, but you're not going to wrestle with God over it. Now you're a Christian. You have a whole other mess of, of things. You just are frustrated uh, more with yourself. And uh, so, it, it, a lot of non-Christians uh, are 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 quite happy. And I think it is it, it, it we have to be very careful too to appreciate the common grace of God. God loves all that he has made and cares for every creature he has made, even the non-elect. God does not take pleasure in the death of the sinner. Uh, uh, God uh, makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust alike. That's God's common grace. And so I think we ought to see there's no difference between a Christian and a non-Christian now. If you, were, if you were a Jew living in Egypt, the land of Goshen might have been nice while all around it was swarming with locusts and other things. 
But not anymore. God doesn't do that. There is no nation he's attached to anymore, except the holy nation drawn from every tribe, kindred, tongue, people, and nation. Now Christians have no reason to expect their day to go any better than a non-Christian. And Christians, non-Christians uh, have no reason to believe their day will go any worse than a Christian's. Um, hell is something as horrible, as horrible as Rwanda is, as horrible it, as it is when a mother cannot feed her baby in Honduras, and so she leaves the baby hoping that someone will pick, it, pick the baby up from the road. I mean, I hear these story, stories from pastors of these churches t- telling what happens every day, or regularly. When, when, when those horrific things happen, they can be analogies of hell. They really are horrible examples of what happens simply in a fallen world, where Satan doesn't even have to really lift a finger. We can do it all by ourselves. That's how depraved our hearts are. But that's not yet hell. Hell is something completely different. And I, don't, I, don't, I just don't see the texts that say, I know this is hard, I don't see texts that say that God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. Uh, in those instances where Jesus says, we will separate the sheep from the goats, and he will cast uh, uh, um, the, the wicked into the everlasting fire, uh, the images we have in the book of Revelation and so forth. God is the active party. God is the one casting them uh, in, into, into hell. And according to Romans 9, receiving glory from, from all creation for his justice, his mercy for those whom he has saved, who didn't deserve saving either, and his justice. Uh, uh, in, in, even in the, in, in the condemnation of, of the wicked, which we all deserve. And, and that's why the writer to the Hebrews says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, for our God is a consuming fire. But it's that God who poured out his wrath, his justice, his pure holiness on the son of his love because he loved us so much and... and uh, uh, included us in his son. All right. Is that okay? Um, you mentioned briefly, you mentioned this briefly in your talk, but one of the things that um, um, employs a lot in his arguments is um, let's try to go back to the Greek and the Hebrew and say, well, these words can be the words of the eternal or, or what have you, and then a certain age. So um, I was just hoping you could comment further on uh, why you find that to not be Great, yeah. Uh, yeah, he interprets aeon, uh, for example, which is everywhere translated everlasting or eternal. Uh, he interprets it as uh, a period of time. And uh, the, the problem is, uh, you know, if, if you're going to, if you're going to uh, break historical, grammatical, Interpretation of what the what what the the words mean in the original language by people who have no dog in the right race, uh, uh, just lexicographers. If you're going to break those rules, you have to have really good reasons. And I don't like what it means here. <laughs> Isn't a very good reason. 
you have to be able to show that your change works consistently for a host of other passages. And it doesn't even in the passages nearest to it. For example, in John 3, uh, it would mean uh, that those who believe uh, God so loves the world, loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have life for a very long time. That's, I mean, that's in the same context. Uh, or olam. He says in the, uh, in the Hebrew, olam, uh, uh, it's usually translated eternal or everlasting. And it's usually applied to God. God is eternal. God is everlasting. Because nothing else is. Uh, and uh, that too, he says, is, is uh, a period of time. There is no Jewish scholar uh, who, who would say that that has any standing at all, particularly because it's almost always used in connection with God, who arguably lives for more than a long period of time. Uh, or for a period, it doesn't even say long, uh, just for a period of time. So that just doesn't work. Uh, lexically, it doesn't work. And uh, I think there are a lot of people who say, well, see, he's using the Bible and he knows Greek and Hebrew. Uh, but you gotta, you, you know, you, you have to ask: Is this? Are these arguments that a wide range of uh, experts uh, in in the ordinary use of these words would have interpreted that way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, just so I get it straight, let me read what he says uh, um, to do him justice here. He, he says, uh, now I, I grew up, every, every pastor I had uh, pointed out that Gehenna was the, you know, the garbage dump uh, where everything was burned, um, but interpreted it, I think rightly, as... An image, you know, Jesus is, you know, how does he describe the indescribable to human beings? Uh, he talks about it as a fire that never, su- here's the city dump where you're, they're always burning the waste. It never dies. The fire never goes out. Uh, Bell uh, says, uh, after referring to Gehenna as the city dump near Jerusalem, says, so the next time someone asks you if you believe in an actual hell, you can say, uh, always say, yes. I do believe that my garbage goes somewhere. See, not that I go somewhere, but my garbage goes somewhere. Gehenna, the town garbage pile, and that's it. Those are all the mentions of hell in the Bible. Um, 
So, whereas I would, ar- whoops, I would argue Jesus is using a vivid, uh, a, a, a vivid geographically locatable analogy for hell, uh, Rob Bell seems to be reducing hell to that kind of uh, literal analogy. In other words, he's, say, he, he's subjectivizing it. It's an experience of that toxicity that we have inside of ourselves that we have to decide uh, about. Will we live in that hell and make hell for others? Or we, will, we, will we live in heaven and the reality of heaven and make this world uh, more conformable to that reality too? One more question. It's more of a comment than a question. Yeah. I was in Jerusalem about five years ago, and looking down off the Mount of Olives, it was, there was burning going on right outside the historic walls. Hmm. So Jesus, 2,000 years ago, used his imagery of saying the everlasting fire. You can go there today and see things being burned. So hmm. not for any little thing. Thank you. All right, well, yes, go right ahead. I wanted to ask you about the seriousness of what, of the effect of what Ron Bell is teaching. I mean, anybody that grows up in a church is going to have issues with the church. Mm -hmm. But we're not free to make up our own theology or or redo the historic Christian faith just because we have issues with the church. So my question is, what he's teaching, would you categorize it as just as guided, error, false teaching, or heresy? I'm going to sit down and see your answer. I almost got away without that question. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. uh. No, that's quite all right. I got it the first time. Um, no, uh, quite right. We can't come up with our own with our own theology. Uh, we can we can uh, challenge the church. We can ask the church, where do you find this in the scriptures? And there are church courts for doing that, uh, depending on what tradition you belong to. You know, is it in the Reformed and Presbyterian world or the Lutheran world? Uh, there are there's a process where we. Because scripture is the uh, ultimate norm, uh, churches, you know, you can bring uh, uh, a, a concern to the wider assembly and they can take it to the wider body and the wider uh, groups of, of pastors and elders meeting together can uh, determine an issue. But all of our churches, at least the churches of the Reformation, are at one with the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox churches on affirming the, the six ecumenical creeds. The ecumenical creeds, uh, 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 as they touch on the Trinity, the, the person of Christ, uh, salvation, so forth, everything in those creeds we affirm. And uh, this is a creedal issue. And so if we, if we say, as I'm duty-bound as a minister in my church to affirm, that the Apostles' Creed is a summary of what is necessary to believe as a Catholic Christian, as a, as a true Christian, uh, then, then uh, uh, 
I have to affirm the last judgment uh, and the life everlasting. Um, now, what is the last judgment, and does Rob Bell affirm the last judgment? It is something that's uh, still open for for debate. I think I think this is an important issue that gives rise to issues that are on the heresy in the in the realm of heresy. I'm not sure if this itself a, a denial of of uh, hell as being forever is heresy. Um, I, I, I do think that, that it's very difficult to hold on for very long uh, to, to, uh, to the view that Rob Bell is holding on to without the supporting arguments that he uses leading finally to uh, serious, serious problems that I think are already apparent in this book itself. But I, I'm just, you know, I, I, I think that it's, it, it may be premature in this, in this debate, it may well be that it's heresy. But at this point in the debate, I think it's important for us not to kill the conversation with a whole generation of young evangelical people who've never had a good opportunity to hear a good case for why we do believe in hell. Uh, Maybe forestall the question about whether it's heresy to have a prolonged period of time to talk about the issue and to try to wrestle with it from Scripture. All right, so there you go. What'd you think? I, you know, I'd, I'd really love to get your feedback on this. You know, I so many things I completely agree with Michael Horton. I appreciate his sober and cautious uh, and and in, you know an in depth analysis of Rob Bell. And uh, and I appreciate his caution that he's trying to take here because he realizes that uh, that uh, he doesn't want to uh, turn off the ability to share what the Bible really teaches and engage people in doctrinal conversations regarding the doctrine of hell. Um, and at the same time, I, you know, I I think that we need to be able to declare Rob Bell to be clearly a heretic. But again, I you know I don't think that uh, Michael Horton has spent the time studying Rob Bell's theology as other people has. As a result of it, I don't think he's working from like the entire picture of what Rob Bell uh, believes, teaches, and confesses. And so, uh, you know, my personal uh, conclusion that I've come to, having you know studied Rob Bell for years is that he believes teaches and confesses a different gospel and that is that is that his doctrine of hell is a fruit of his different gospel and uh, and as a result of it I, I i just wonder if michael horton sees the bigger picture when it comes to rob bell but again g- great lecture very insightful and we can learn from these uh, types of lectures and that's why i i preempted the program today to play this in its entirety and get it into your hands so that you can Listen to it and ponder and think regarding what it is that uh, you know Michael Horton said here regarding critiquing Rob Bell's uh, book. So, all right. So, what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of uh, Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Until Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. His vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.